libraries were archives of clay tablets, primarily marked up with cuneiform script, one of the earliest forms of writing, and especially prominent due to its utility in keeping accounts. Most of these tablets that were maintained in these early archives, then, were the ancient Sumerian equivalent of Excel spreadsheet documents, rather than great works of fiction or formalized treatises about anything more expansive and culturally oriented. This use case and the medium determined the shape of early libraries. They were essentially rows of shelves built to hold rows of clay tablets, one edge facing the librarian, the contents of the tablet inscribed along that outer edge, the setup optimized for use by professionals almost exclusively. The cradle of civilization encompasses what we often call the Fertile Crescent, a portion of Southwest Asia that was blessed with excellent agriculture and geography that made it a crossroads for trade between emerging civilizations across Europe, Asia, and Africa. The Fertile Crescent moniker, then, refers to the region's soil and climate, while the Cradle of Civilization label refers to the region's physical recordings of information, those recordings incentivized by this geographic placement. These tablets and the equivalent documents recorded on papyrus scrolls in ancient Egypt around the same time, something like 5,000 to 6,000 years ago, are the artifacts that allow us to draw a line in the sands of time and say, this is where history begins. Because up until this point, all we have is oral tradition to tell us what happened, where, and when. But having physical artifacts allows us to document something in one period and then to see precisely what was said, what was recorded, without intermediary bias or forgetfulness or misinterpretation, influencing our collective memory of what happened, even thousands of years later. Thus, the documentary tablet and scroll are representative of a sea change in humanity's cultural evolution, and the archives in which these documents were gathered, organized, and protected serve as treasure troves of information about how our ancestors lived, what they considered to be important, what was normal and abnormal in terms of behavior and belief, and countless other bits of data that, up until this moment, when things were written down, that writing preserved, we had no way of recording. We are mostly in the dark as to the truth of what happened in specificity before preserved writing, before history began. We have educated guesses, but no first-hand accounts. In the generations since those early documents were created and stored in this way, we've come up with other sorts of repositories for other sorts of documents, each similar to the other, but optimized for different use cases. Among them, the library stands out as a versatile and widespread archival method. Many early libraries were personal in nature, This was especially true before the dawn of the mechanical type-based printing press, which dramatically lowered the cost of a book and other printed materials, to the point where the everyday person could potentially own one, typically Bibles at first, but eventually other works as well. Leading up to that point, though, books and scrolls and other sorts of writing-inscribed artifacts were manually created, often by people who trained their entire lives to write things down, 
and to interpret the writing of other experts who had done the same previously. Scribes were sometimes actual monks who, due to their religious convictions, worshipped through this practice, spending all day every day working their way through older tomes, meticulously rewriting the words into new books so that the materials wouldn't be lost to time, racing against the clock, essentially, trying to save old books by copying them into new books, which themselves would someday need to be recopied by a future monk as well. You can see how this sort of everlasting task might come to be associated with religious ritual, and it's fortunate that so many religious institutions saw things in this way, where there's a good chance that much of what we know through these books would have been lost to us long ago. Churches, monasteries, temples, and the like, as a result of this ritualism, and the fact that they were often the only entities with the resources to do such work on this scale, tended to have the largest collections of writings on all subjects, in most cultures, for a very long time. But wealthy benefactors could also afford to hire these scribes, or secular versions of the same, to make them a family Bible, or to create a copy of another book that they had on hand, something written by a foreign scholar, maybe, or a scientific text that was produced for royalty somewhere. Possessing even one book of any kind was considered to be a display of wealth and taste in many cultures during this period, because of how expensive they were to make, in time and resources, and because they were still quite obscure, and almost entirely worthless to most people, most people on the planet being illiterate at this time. Innovations on this model popped out throughout civilizations around the world, between the age of tablets and the age of mass-printed books. Islamic nations, in particular, were fervent in their belief that knowledge and the texts that contained them should be protected and respected. These nations were early innovators in what we might call the pre-industrialized, large-scale paper industry. And while European scholars were scrambling to gain access to Christian church-owned documents, a procession of Chinese dynasties were building imperial libraries, inventing library classification systems, and formalizing catalog systems that made searching through the scrolls and books they were collecting and organizing more intuitive. Elsewhere, Early American civilizations were creating complex, not-based systems to keep tabs on their accounting and other such data, creating libraries filled with knotted ropes that provided them with many of the same benefits of early libraries elsewhere. And a great many of the languages spoken across Africa were being chiseled into stone, painted onto walls, brushed onto papyrus and paper, and traced into sand for negotiating purposes. With the dawn of secular academic institutions, Schools that were not formally associated with any particular religious entity came the academic library. These collections made texts of all kinds available to students, teachers, and visiting scholars, and made such works available to non-royal, non-wealthy, non-monk people for the first time. And because these institutions were often well-funded, they could act in the same way that wealthy benefactors had previously, but their private collection was more open and accessible to more people compared to that of a lord or wealthy merchant. The concept of lending books to those who wished to peruse them beyond the walls of the library emerged from academic libraries. As illiteracy spread, documents became less expensive and precious, and leaders of various sorts began to perceive the cultural prestige derived from having an educated populace, or at the very least, an educated subset of their population. 
It was only quite recently, though, that the average, non-scholar person would have had access to a collection of books and other documents, like those found in a typical, modern public library. Subscription libraries emerged around the world relatively shortly after academic libraries, but they were most prominent in England around the beginning of the 19th century. These libraries were generally privately owned, and they replicated much of what was found in academic libraries, but made their collections accessible to people who could afford to pay a fee, rather than only to students, professors, and visiting scholars. This new model democratized access to information to a certain degree, but it was still relegated to a certain portion of the population, those who could afford to pay the membership fees, and was often limited in scope, focusing on documents related to particular trades, to biographies and histories, and to theological texts. Fiction was very seldom found in libraries of this kind at this time. There were a few publicly accessible free libraries in existence at this point, like Chetham's Library in Manchester in the UK, but these were few and far between, and even these quite generous for the time libraries lacked some of the components of a modern public library that we tend to take for granted, like the ability to check out a book and take it home for a period of time. Tax-supported public circulating libraries, those that allowed patrons to check out books to read at their leisure, began to emerge and quickly took off in the mid-19th century, after the British government passed the Public Libraries Act of 1850, which gave local governments the power to establish public libraries, in part because the Industrial Revolution had provided ordinary workers with more free time than they'd had previously, and the upper classes were worried that these workers were not spending their free time appropriately. It was thought that by investing in free libraries, open to the ordinary rabble as these higher-ups saw them, there would be fewer problems resulting from bad decisions made by workers who were suddenly unoccupied and potentially bored. They wanted them to have access to books, in other words, so they weren't out getting drunk and carousing 24-7. So a very condescending and paternalistic sense about the everyday person led to the creation of what many would consider today to be one of the most beloved and useful public services governments ever decided to provide their citizens. Similar models then spread around the world, and although variations of the free library already existed elsewhere, including in the United States, where the American School Library, which was a traveling library that carried books around the American frontier beginning in 1839, the British model demonstrated how such assets could be invested in long-term and showed the potential benefits of doing so to politicians who otherwise may not have considered such intellectual-seeming resources suitable for the everyday person. The benefits of providing these resources to the public quickly proved to be worth far more than the money invested. Modern public lending libraries today exist around the world and provide an incredible array of services from lending books and granting access to historical documents to increasingly providing free Wi-Fi within the library and to their patrons at home via loanable Wi-Fi hotspots, alongside lendable works of art that patrons can hang on their walls, loanable power tools and kitchen equipment, and access to online courses in-person training sessions and talks, and freely available third spaces where people can go, away from work and away from home, to study, read, or just hang out, an increasingly rare asset in some parts of the world. 
There are still other sorts of libraries, of course. National libraries that maintain historical records and other documentation relevant to government operation and for archival purposes. Research libraries that are more akin to older academic libraries, loaning out ultra-specific content to primarily professionals and experts in relevant fields and many of which only allow the books and documents that they contain to be accessed at the library. They can't be taken home, in contrast to how a circulating library operates. But there's also the emerging digital library subtype, which in many cases applies to circulating libraries and their digital collections, but which is also a separate library type that exists online only, providing access to a wide assortment of media and services often to a wider audience than their physical kin can practically, or in some cases regulatorily, manage. It's this latter type of library that I want to talk about today, and one digital library in particular that is fairly non-traditional, even within this broadly novel and non-traditional library subspecies, that has recently come into conflict with a group representing some of the people who create the books that populate this and other libraries of all shapes, sizes, and types. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. If you're enjoying what I'm doing here at Let's Know Things, you might enjoy my new podcast, Brain Lenses. Brain Lenses is a podcast about the variables that influence the way that we see the world and ourselves and other people, and it's a project that I've enjoyed writing for quite some time, but now there is a podcast version as well. So if you'd like to check that out, you can find out more about it at brainlenses.com, or you can just subscribe to the podcast wherever you typically get your podcasts. All right, let's get back to the show. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Slate, and it's entitled The Internet Archive Started an Emergency Online Library. Authors are furious. Before we jump into this specific controversy, it's probably prudent to outline who the major players in this ongoing conflict are, as those details will be important to understanding what's going on and why it's a thing in the first place. The Authors Guild was founded in 1912 as the Authors League of America and is a nonprofit organization that provides writers of various kinds, from students just entering the field to established bestsellers and Pulitzer and Nobel Prize winning authors, with legal advice, information about contracts, and other mechanisms that can be confusing within the world of publishing, helping with licensing and royalty concerns, and insurance services. The Authors Guild also lobbies the United States government, and state governments on topics related to taxes and censorship and those related to copyright law, all issues that are relevant to their author and writer constituents. Among many other things, the Authors Guild has fought in a legal context to keep the publishing industry from consolidating, which would arguably have been bad for everyone involved other than the higher-ups at these publishing companies and they've worked and continue working to increase the royalties that authors receive from sales of their books. So they're trying to get more money from each sale into the hands of the person who wrote the book, rather than the hands of the intermediary publishers. 
The Authors Guild often works behind the scenes, or in smaller ways, to support their members, and, arguably, writers and authors as a whole, at least to some degree, but they periodically end up in the limelight due to a particularly big or newsworthy case. The most recent, big mainstream case that they tackled was a class-action suit against Google that claimed the tech company was committing a crime when they scanned millions of books, most of them still under copyright, without permission from the copyright holders. Google intended to use these scans in their Google Book Search database, which allows internet users to search the contents of a book, not read the entire book cover to cover, but search the whole of the book for contextual purposes. So you could search for a quote, and Google would be able to pull up the exact page of the book containing that quote, giving you all of the info about the book itself, but also the context in which the quote exists. The idea was to make all the world's books searchable, just as they've made the internet searchable, but to do so in a way that people would still buy books, hence the ability to search for passages and context, but not to read the entirety of a book in this way. The Second Circuit Court in New York decided the case, saying that Google's project, quote, provides a public service without violating intellectual property law, end quote. The Authors Guild appealed the decision, but the U.S. Supreme Court declined to review it, which left that lower court decision standing. Which is why, today, Google has that book search option available, despite the misgivings of this group that represents some of the authors whose work has been scanned and made searchable in this way. Relevant here is that this was not the first or only suit the Authors Guild has ever brought against a data-oriented company that wanted to build a database filled with content written by Guild members. In 2014, a year after the case against Google was decided, a class-action suit that they brought against LexisNexis and similar data brokers was settled. The database companies were pulling articles and essays from publications like the New York Times and Time Magazine and republishing them within their databases without getting permission from the writers or providing them with compensation. This case was initiated all the way back in the year 2000, so it took 14 years for a settlement to be reached and payments to be figured out. But in 2001, the Supreme Court decided that writers had to be compensated for their work, even when that work was being republished in a digital medium rather than a physical one. Writers received up to $1,500 per article in the resulting long-delayed settlement. So, that is the Authors Guild. On the other side of this dust-up, we find the Internet Archive, a digital library founded in 1996, which has the stated mission of providing, quote, universal access to all knowledge, end quote. And to be clear, they are a real-deal library. They just provide vastly more and more types of resources than most libraries can manage, for a variety of reasons. The Internet Archive is probably best known for its Wayback Machine project, which crawls the entirety of the World Wide Web and archives what it finds so it's possible to see how the web looked at different moments across the history of the web. And many people, at some point, use this tool to check out their old, long-disappeared live journal pages, or to see how the website of major companies looked back in the early days of the consumer internet. But it's also useful for noting changes made to publications, establishing documentary truth in a medium that is infinitely changeable and holding people and entities accountable for statements and actions that they later deny. 
and then delete the evidence of. In some cases, the Wayback Machine is able to show that they did in fact say or do something when other evidence is no longer available. Beyond the Wayback Machine, though, the Internet Archive also provides access to a vast array of digitized resources, from software and games to music, movies, images, and books. Many of these media collections are created in partnership with other entities, like museums, educational institutions, and government organizations like NASA. The Internet Archive has a microfilm collection, thousands of old feature films from the World War II era, alongside media from the 2004 U.S. presidential election, showing debates, commercials run by all of the candidates, and other bits of media history from that moment in time that we otherwise don't have established ways to collect, aggregate, archive, organize, and provide access to. The Archive, which makes most of this content available at archive.org, also maintains a collection of TV news programs from various points in history, some of which are searchable by their closed captions. They have a historical software archive that allows people to peruse and use old shareware harvested from deteriorating disks, and they have, at times, lobbied on behalf of their aforementioned goal to make all knowledge accessible, including opposing Google in their efforts to scan books back in the day, just as the Authors Guild did. Though in the Archives case, they were opposed to Google's methods and the deal that was in the process of being struck between them and the Authors Guild, which would allow Google to scan millions of books but then to have exclusive access to those scans, using it only for their own purposes, making portions of the books available in search queries, which they could then monetize through advertising. The Internet Archive wanted those books scanned, but they wanted those scans to then be made available to everyone for free. So on one side, we have a group that represents the rights and priorities of working authors and other types of writers, and on the other, we have a group that is focused on making information and knowledge open and available to everyone. These groups are not necessarily going to be brought into conflict most of the time as writers are a diverse group, but in general tend to like sharing knowledge with the world and getting information and entertainment into people's hands. They're not censorious by nature, and in fact, authors and the Guild generally vehemently oppose censorship efforts by organizations and governments whenever possible. But when it comes to making information and knowledge created by these authors and other writers available to everyone for free, that becomes a problem. Because for creators of content to make a living, they generally have to make money from that content that they create. And entities like the Internet Archive, by their very nature, are all about making such content available to everyone, everywhere, whenever possible, at zero cost. One more concept worth understanding is what's generally referred to as controlled digital lending, which is a legal model through which libraries are able to add digital media to their lendable collections, so microfilm, but also posters, scrolls, books, and anything else. This concept allows them to lend those materials to more people by limiting their lending so that the digital borrowing more closely mimics real-world borrowing. In practice, this usually means that if a library scans a book that they have in their collection, they can then lend that digital scan out to one person at a time, but no more than that. Because in real life, the physical object could only ever be in the possession of one person at a time, and treating the digital object 
in the same way, allows them to argue, via the controlled digital lending model, that they're not messing with the relevant copyrights. This model has been challenged and debated since it was first formally posited in 2011 under a precursor concept called the Digitize and Lend program, which was a subprogram of Open Library, which itself is a subprogram of the Internet Archive that is focused on creating a web version of every book in existence. And the particular focus of this program is archiving rare and out-of-print books, which have been or can be scanned by private owners, libraries, and other institutions around the world. The Internet Archive, as is their tendency, then makes these scans available to everyone. But in general, the peace is maintained via an uneasy legal standoff because of this controlled digital lending policy to which they typically adhere, limiting the number of people who can use the digital copies one at a time. The open library wing of the Internet Archive has been under fire by author interest groups, like the Authors Guild, since its inception. They don't really care for the controlled digital lending concept, which they see as being easy to hack and bypass, giving people free access to books, which in their eyes makes the archive little different from the many pirating platforms like Pirate Bay that share such work for free. In their eyes, stealing potential sales from authors and the publishers that make the financial investments required to get such work into the world. And that, I believe, brings us to where we need to be to discuss what is happening right now, as portrayed in that Slate article. On March 24th, 2020, the Internet Archive announced that they would be creating what they called the National Emergency Library. This would involve, in essence, removing the one-person-at-a-time limitation from about 1.4 million digitized books that they have available, so that as many people as want them can check them out at a time. Again, typically the way this works is that the archive has these scanned versions of books and other media, which it then lends out to just one person at a time, mimicking the lending of a physical object, and thus making it tricky for entities like the Authors Guild to make a solid legal case against this digitization in online lending practice. With this announcement, the archive basically said that because of the emergency situation, because students are not able to go to school, and libraries are closing around the world, they wanted to make these books and other educational resources available to everyone who needed them, so the limits would be temporarily lifted until June 30th, or until the United States National Emergency was over, whichever came later. The Authors Guild, and other author and writer-specific professional organizations, were already not big fans of the Internet Archive, but this new move was a step too far. They put out word to their members that many of them had work up on the archive and gave them templates to fill out, which they could then send to the folks managing the National Emergency Library to have their work taken down, something that many of them bristled at because they felt that this should have been an opt-in process, if anything, rather than forcing them to take their time to request that their copyrighted work not be given away for free to anyone on the planet who wanted it from their perspective asking nicely to not have their work pirated, essentially. Worth noting here is that the books contained in this library that are now open access to whomever wants to check them out are primarily scans of the pages of books, not professionally made ebooks. So the user experience is generally terrible, and it makes a lot more sense 
for old, rare books, and in some cases for referencing what a physical copy of a book looks like. It's not really the clean, intuitive reading experience that you would expect from an ebook bought for your Kindle, or the ebook that you might download from another library's website, those libraries having paid to put these books in their catalog for a certain number of checkouts before they have to pay again. Those latter types of ebooks are intentionally and professionally published as ebooks. But although there are some ebook versions of these scanned books available on the Internet Archive, the ebook files, which are primarily of the EPUB file format, are auto generated by software, which attempts to scan these photos of the pages of physical books to then figure out which letters are which before converting those assumptions into an ebook file. And I've read books generated using this method before. It's very hit and miss. Some books, especially those printed with the right fonts and those that are professionally scanned with very clear images rather than those that are photographed in questionable lighting, sometimes turn out pretty well with few errors. Others, though, are borderline unreadable due to all of the software-introduced flaws in the copy. Whatever the quality of the resulting product, though, this is being seen as a brazen formalization of what amounts to piracy in the eyes of the Authors Guild perpetrated in the name of helping educational institutions, forwarding the freedom of knowledge and information, and supporting the public during a pandemic. In other words, the Authors Guild sees this as an amplification of an illegal activity that was small and limited enough to ignore previously, but which may warrant more direct and muscular action now that the entity behind these copyright violations has sought to make themselves out to be heroes, rather than thieves victimizing innocent authors in order to further their cause. The blowback resulting from the announcement of the launch of the National Emergency Library and the responses from the Authors Guild, but also from many prominent authors on their blogs, in their newsletters, and on social media, has led to a contentious back and forth between folks who share a large number of similar ideals and opinions, especially about things like censorship, but who in this case are on opposite sides, disagreeing about how digitized goods, copyright law, and the publishing industry should fit together in the future. Authors who have criticized the Internet Archive's approach to all of this have been met with scorn, abuse, and threats from their own fans, from open information advocates, and of course from the usual trolls who never miss the chance to participate in an online pylon. Those who have come out in support of the Internet Archive and free and open knowledge for everyone have been called thieves, criticized for not supporting the creators of the work that they enjoy and purport to value, and have been raked over the coals by their peers for victimizing everyone from authors to indie booksellers to the folks who design book covers, none of whom would be able to continue doing that kind of work, lacking the money derived from selling books. Books, again, which were now being given away for free to anyone who wanted them. Now, it's possible, I think, to totally believe that a world in which knowledge and information and even entertainment is free and available to everyone equally everywhere, no matter how much money they have or where they come from, would be amazing. But that in order to make such a world a reality, fundamental aspects of the world we live in today would first need to change. 
I personally think that such a world would be desirable in many ways, but I also make part of my living as an author. And until and unless either money becomes less necessary or unnecessary to survive, to keep a roof over my head and food on the table, making the things I create for a living to earn money free does actually hurt me and my ability to create things in the future. If I don't have that income, I would have to spend my time on some other kind of work that would earn me income. That's just the nature of the world that we live in right now. At the same time, there are a great many flaws and inadequacies built into the current status quo, from the overall economic system to the publishing world in particular. The issues even die-hard authors and readers have with the world of publishing are legion, and yet this is the system that we have at the moment. And any attempt to fundamentally change that system would, at least in the short term, negatively impact people who are just trying to create good work and who are not part of the, at times, rent-seeking structure that has expanded throughout the publishing industry over the last century, making the process of creating and dissemination of one's work increasingly cumbersome and expensive and, at times, a little bit corrupt. What we have, in other words, is a conflict between how things are and how we would like things to be. It's likely that if you removed the need to make money to pay the bills and eat, a great many authors would be all about providing their work to the world for free. But that's not the world that we live in. At the same time, you don't create a world in which media is available to everyone everywhere for nothing without first breaking apart the structure that formalizes the opposite within our production and consumption systems. It's possible that other mechanisms for supporting the creators of books and other work could emerge, but it's unlikely that such mechanisms will fully flower without first pushing back against, and even breaking, in some instances, the current paradigm. We are arguably already seeing some such potential systems in patron-based platforms like Patreon and Substack, but we haven't yet seen the emergence of something that could truly challenge the dominance of the more traditional publishing economy. And it's possible we never will, lacking the need to do so. And that need is unlikely to fully emerge unless the current flawed system faces an existential threat. That is part of the logic being leveraged here, I think. And it's a fairly brutal logic in some ways, but I also understand it, and I enjoy a great many of the benefits of the version of it that exists now, despite also having more than a few concerns about what it potentially could be if done wrong. Now, as I record this, the conflict between the archive and the guild is limited to press releases and statements made to the publications reporting on the issue. The guild has accused the archive of attempting to, quote, advance a copyright ideology that violates current federal law and hurts most authors, end quote. While the archive maintains that it is just trying to help with, quote, remote teaching, research activities, independent scholarship, and intellectual stimulation, while universities, schools, training centers, and libraries are closed, end quote. Initial reports about this effort, which were published as feel-good news, mostly, alongside the myriad free concerts, operas, and museum tours that have tried to keep conversation light and breezy in the early days of COVID-19-related pandemic shutdowns, have mostly been replaced with more nuanced takes expressing the intentions of the archive while also tempering that position with quotes from authors whose work ended up in this scanned document library, much to their chagrin and or anger. 
There hasn't been much in the way of tangible movement since those initial public relations flurries, in part, I suspect, because both sides are checking their legal ammo belts to see what they can expect to get done in court versus in the court of public opinion. It does seem unlikely, based on what I'm seeing from legal scholars on the matter, at least, that the Guild will be able to do much more than air their grievances due to the remarkable circumstances of the act and the fact that the Archive announced what they're doing as a temporary thing. Any legal action would take a very long time, probably, potentially even a great many years, before it came to any real conclusion. And although the Guild may make some token legal gesture to demonstrate that they take this seriously, and in an attempt to stave off future attempts by the Archive or other entities that intend to play the same copyright games, the general consensus seems to be that they will have to take this one on the chin while helping their member authors do what they can do to pull their work from the Archive using the opt-out resources provided to them by the Archive. All of this is happening at a moment, too, in which those of us with reliable internet access are not exactly lacking for consumable content. And much of what we have available is incredibly diverse and often very well-made. And so the idea that we're all going to go download a shoddy, scanned copy of a physical book to read, rather than indulging in one of the countless other options that we have casually available, that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, that's arguably not the point, especially in the legal, precedent-setting sense. But especially when it comes to the practicality of the matter, I see Netflix and virtual museum tours and the abundance of free podcasts and other media as being much greater threats to book sales than the scans of anybody's work that might be available at the Internet Archive. That said, books that have much bigger infrastructure underpinning their production and launch are quite possibly not overreacting here. And it may be prudent for the companies and other entities behind these books to take big, even unpopular steps to solidify their position within the broader media economy, and to thus attempt to swat this particular fly with a bazooka, lest more flies arise when they realize they won't be swatted. On a more granular level, I'll be interested to see download numbers from the archive after the worst of the pandemic has passed, as there's a decent chance that this whole hullabaloo actually strengthened them rather than weakened them. The Streisand effect refers to what happens when an attempt to take something down or conceal something from the world results in more attention for that thing, more people wanting to see that thing because they want to see what all the fuss is about. And in most cases, they would not have otherwise known that that thing existed had somebody not complained and tried to conceal it from them. There's already evidence that attempts by the Authors Guild to portray the Internet Archive as a villain may have actually made a great many people aware that the Archive existed, and that could have increased their traffic and popularity as an unintended consequence. I will also be interested to see overall book sales data from that same period, as it could help us test the question of whether free access to books, whether through libraries or through piracy, inflates or deflates overall sales. There's been research conducted over the years within the publishing industry and in neighboring industries like in music sales that indicate 
both outcomes could be true under different circumstances. Piracy can increase the public's awareness of certain bands and authors, leading to more overall lifetime sales of their work, but it can also result in fewer sales of certain products as people grab free versions of those products rather than paying for them. I think more data and assessment of that data would be valuable in helping us figure out how we can get more resources into more hands without leaving creators of that work unable to spend the time required to make it due to economic realities. This is a topic that I strongly suspect will not be fully settled for a decade or more, and it's likely that in the meantime, some new norm, or potentially a reinforced existing norm, will take practical precedence. This may be, in part, set by public perception of this specific conflict and how both sides frame their actions and the actions of the other side for public consumption, though it may also emerge due to changes in habits when it comes to the consumption of media in general. The old dynamic of book publishing and selling may prove to be largely irrelevant, at least on the scale that it enjoyed before. In the current age of always-on, always-streaming, seemingly unlimited subscription-based everything, but it could also be that freebies in the age of such abundance are pushed to the side, since everything is close enough to free that we psychologically devalue the stuff that's just handed to us. The utility of these sorts of archives primarily limited to their research and historical functions. If you're digging what I'm doing here on Let's Know Things, you might also enjoy my new podcast, Brain Lenses. You can find out more about Brain Lenses at brainlenses.com, or you can subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story That Helped Ignite a Movement by Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy. This is a very well-written book that documents the emergence of the Me Too movement from the perspective of some of the journalists who were there and writing a lot of the articles that eventually kicked off that movement, doing the interviews, doing the investigation. And interestingly, it happens parallel to the events that Ronan Farrow wrote about in his book on the matter, Catch and Kill. And both books actually have their own sub-stories, their own distinct style, and their own beginning and end points. They're very different stories that just happen to intersect at some interesting points, and that then ultimately combined with the stories of several other journalists, not to mention the people that they interviewed and whose work that they published and experiences they published, that then culminated in that larger Me Too movement. These journalists in particular, though, they tell a very good story. They worked incredibly hard under very difficult circumstances to get this work done. And to me, this was just one more testament to the fact that we should be supporting good journalism whenever possible, especially when that journalism starts to tell us things that we don't want to hear. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of She Said by Jody Cantor and Megan Tui. You can find more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcripts for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find out more about my new podcast at brainlenses.com. 
or just by searching for Brain Lenses wherever you get your podcasts. You can find some of my other writing projects at exilelifestyle.com and askcolin.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on most of those, and just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.